Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Would you, if you don't mind, turn to someone around you and say good morning to them for a moment, if you don't mind. If you don't know them, maybe you want to introduce yourself. Yes, uh, we are glad that you are here. And uh, we are starting a journey today through the book of James, five chapters. And uh, we will spend 12 weeks together all the way up to our first actually teaching from, for the Advent season. How many realize that Advent is on its way? You know, Christmas will be here. Isn't that great? And I have to say that this is September, so I have begun listening to Christmas music already. Yes, I have. And the staff, they, now that I, I have a new office, if you don't know that, I'm, I'm way down at the end of the cave, way down far back in the recesses of the cave. And, and so they don't have to listen to it like they used to anymore, and so they're thanking the Lord for that, okay? But I'm, I'm in the mood, so there you go. So we're going to work 12 weeks together, and we'll find ourselves in Advent sometime in December. But today, part one of our study through the book of James, and we have to start with this question, who was James? And so I put out beside that brother-servant, because it's important as he describes himself. Now, Today we're going to cover an enormous amount of Scripture, an enormous amount of Scripture. Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to start with James chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to end with James chapter 1, verse 1. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that great? Now, as you know, as you know me, most of you do, that means nothing about the length of the teaching. It has nothing that's irrelevant when it comes to that. But there are some really powerful things in that very first verse of the book of James. But here's a couple of things about what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. But what I would really like you to consider doing this coming week before next Sunday morning is that you take a block of time of about 30 minutes or so this week and you read the five chapters of the book of James. Now, here is a a, a good kind of a bit of information. If you just read it for the purpose of reading it, you can read through it in about 15 minutes. You really can. But if you want to really read it and digest it, give it about 30 minutes to do that. Then in the notes today, we have given you some questions. Each week, we're going to give you a little more detailed kind of notes and some questions each week that you can kind of go through. And it gives you an opportunity to stop, reflect, think, and answer those things about how the book of James applies to you. So it would be great if you would block off 30 minutes sometime during this week to sit down and read the whole book throughout and then kind of look at the questions that are in your notes and answer them as the Lord kind of speaks to you through that process. So today, let's start in James, jump right in. Let's get right in. What we're going to do, I know you like to kind of have a roadmap of what we're going to do. We're going to read James chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to talk for a while. We're going to read from the book of Luke, Psalms, and a couple of Psalms, and then back in the book of John. It's going to help us to kind of understand what we're talking about, talk about some things that we see in the book of James. Then we're going to end with a video testimony this morning and then come back and sing a song together and give you an opportunity to reflect on all of those things. James chapter 1, verse 1 says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is important. As James kind of titles himself or refers to himself as that of a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we will talk about that in a few moments. To the 12 tribes. To the 12 tribes. Now, understand what the book of James is because I don't want you to look at this in some ethereal, detached way. The book of James is a letter. It is a letter. He's going to say who he's writing to in just a moment. But it is is a letter. It is a very personal letter. So the book of James is something very personal to you and I. So he says this, James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion greetings. And the word dispersion is capitalized there for a reason and we're going to talk about that in a few moments. But one of the most, out, uh, I, I think, outstanding aspects, of, of compelling aspects that I find in Scripture, uh, and that is that of the nature and the character of God, is that in the midst of God's immensity, in the midst of God's immensity, which is the first thing I want to talk about, He is dialed into us personally. One of the most compelling aspects of the nature and the character of God is that in the midst of his immensity, that he is dialed into my life and your life in a very personal way. I think one of the most compelling aspects that we find in Scripture in the teaching about the nature and the character of God, in one sense, is his immensity. That there is nothing that God does not govern. Understand that. 
There is nothing that God does not govern, and there is nothing that God does not know about. God knows everything, and God governs all things. Realize that. Everything in this world passes through the hands of God. And so when I I begin to try to wrap my mind around something that is almost we're unable to wrap our mind around, and that is that God knows the orbit of every planet in the universe, the orbit of every planet in the universe. He knows the temperature of every sun in the universe. He knows, well, I brought the earth with me today. I brought it. And so actually I tried to fit this in my car and it wouldn't fit in my car. So Reba brought it. Because Reba is the world to me, and so and she actually, and that, isn't that very nice? She actually went to Servant Hope Kids, and so she left. But tell her I said that, please, if you don't do mind doing that, okay? It's points. All points evaporate at midnight. I know that. But anyway, points are points within himself, okay? And, and so I begin to think about the immensity of God, and, I, and, I, and, I, and so I brought the world with me, and I thought just to bring it down to something maybe we can wrap our mind around, and that is of what God knows, that God knows the, the volume of water in every ocean, every sea in our world. He does. That God not only knows the volume of water of every ocean and sea in our world, but God knows how many grains of sand are on every shore of every ocean, every sea in the world. He does. God knows the shape and the number of every cloud that would simply float over every ocean and sea and would simply draw water and come upon the ground where he knows of every grain and the amount and the number of every grain of sand that we find in this world and drop rain. And then God knows of every design of every drop of water and how many drops of water ever fall upon this earth at any point at any time. That is mind-boggling. It is. Now, later on, there'll be a test for you to repeat all of that back to me. Okay, understand that. But yet, that is mind-boggling, that God is so immense in who he is as the creator and sustainer of all, that he is aware of all of those things in our universe. Yet, here is what the book of James teaches us, and I think this is what you have to frame it with this morning as we start on this study together, that in the midst of that immensity of God, God is dialed into the the micro levels of the things of this world. Now, let me bring that even into more of a micro view for you. It's not just that he's dialed into every cell and every body in in this world or every cell and every plant that's on every landscape of this world. He is all of those kinds of things. But the Bible says that he's taken very special interest in you and I above everything else. That amazes me. That the God that simply knows all of the suns and all the orbits of the planets of the universe, the God that comes to our world that he has created for you and I to live in, Oh, that God knows the volume of all of the seas and all the oceans of the water. He knows the number of of grains of sand upon every beach. He knows every cloud and the shape of every cloud and the amount and the design of every drop of water that brings water from the ocean and drops it on 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 the beach. He knows all of those kinds of things. Yet the immensity of God, in light of that, he also has taken extreme interest in you and I. And sometimes I think what we try to do is we have God or we view God is this separated deity from his creation that somehow he came down, he created us, he made us all, he placed us here, he gave us this world to live in, and somehow he is removed and kind of watches us move around in this world like it's some kind of game or a video game that he plays. No, that is not the God that we find in the Bible, especially when we begin to read the books like the book of James. He's dialed into the micro levels of my life and your life. He knows everything about you, everything about you, everything. Yes, everything about you. God knows. Well, Mark, there has to be some things that God is really not interested in in my life. And it's not that he doesn't know, but he's really, no, no. Can I share some text with you? One is this from the book of Luke chapter 12, verse 7. I love this text because it kind of says, oh, God knows everything about me. It says, why, starting out, 
even the hairs of your head are, are all numbered. Fear not. Why do we not fear? Because the hairs of our head are numbered. You are of more value than many sparrows. And maybe you're thinking, Mark, maybe you haven't looked at me very closely because that's not a difficult task for God, you know? That is not a difficult task for God. It's not. I was watching a video of one of our services the other day, having a look at it because we're making some changes in camera angles and different kinds like that. And all of a sudden, I I said to um, somebody that I was watching this with, look, you can see my balls spot in the lighting from the stage, you know? Then that is awful, isn't it? Yes, that is terrible. We have to do something about that, change the lighting. I don't know, but yet you can see it. And if you say, well, I don't see it. Well, that's my business where it is, okay? And you just leave that between the Lord and I. But in the immensity, uh, immensity of God, he's dialed into those very things of our life that he created us in his own image. And he sees us and he knows he has numbered every hair on our head. And some of you are saying, well, you don't understand. That's an easy thing for God to do. But when I think about really what this text says it implies in our life it's this that even before you lost that hair god knew everyone god knew all god knew it before you lost the flow you understand that god knew how many hairs upon your head when you rocked the mullet god knew that right Yes, and some of you did that. Yes, God knew all the hairs on your head, even when you were then at awkward stage that you didn't know whether you were going to shave it all off or you were simply going to dye it blonde and comb it over. God knew all of those things. Yes, yes. He knows us. That is important that when you leave today, you understand that God knows all. Now, can I... Can I ramp that up for a moment? It's the book of Psalms, Psalm 139 and verse 16. Here's what it says, that your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet they were none of them. And in that what we have is this immense sovereign king of all glory dialed into you and I dialed into us. It's not that God just goes on our Instagram page and he likes all these photos that we have put up. Okay, understand that? So that we have some resemblance of God kind of liking us as if God wants to date us or something. That's not it at all. No, he knows the hairs on our heads, everything about us. As much as I am captivated by my wife, Reba, understand this? I have never counted all the hairs on her head. And I know that's terrible, isn't it? For some of you husbands that are better than I am, then you probably have done that. But I've never done that. But God knows that. And then this text in Psalm says, And he knows all of my days, even before they are formed. When I am created in the womb of my mom, then what it says is simply this, that God knows my days even before they happen. He does. And when we hear all of these things, I think sometimes we go to this default kind of deal where it says that, yeah, well, God knows about us. Well, God knows about us, and God thinks about us. And I think this is kind of rare in our teaching, because many times we try to stay away from the word me. We really do. And we talk about things like, remember, we talk about navel-gazing. I love that term, navel-gazing, as we look within ourselves and realize we make a lousy Savior for ourselves. We do. And we always say, get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on others, because that's what life is all about. But when we begin to study books like the book of James what we realize is that they are very personal books. They personalize the Bible and saying that God is interested in you. I don't know if you know that or not. The God that holds the world in his hand, sustains it by his very power, God is interested in you. Wow. That amazes me. So you've already said good morning to the person next to you. Could you do this for a moment? Could you turn to them and say, the sovereign God of this universe is interested in you. Could you say it to them? The sovereign God of this universe is interested in you. Yes. Yes. And if it's a girl and you're a guy and you've been eyeing this girl and you think, oh, this is the girl for me, then you could say to them, and so am I. You know, you could say that right now would be a great opportunity to do that. Yes, it's a great lead in, you know, kind of deal. Yeah, that the sovereign king of this universe is interested not just in us, but he is interested in you. 
He has put you together. He's put all of your days together. So why? So that you might walk in fullness of joy, bringing this amount, uh, this great amount of glory to God. So what is God all about in this regard to God knowing the numbers of hairs on our head? What is God all about in regard to this of knowing our days? Well, it takes us to the book of Psalm again. Psalms 16, Psalm 16, verse 11. It says this, that you make known to me the path of life. And that is really important. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That Jesus lays out the path of life. This is the God of the universe who knows everything and who governs all things. He knows the hairs on our head because he is interested personally in us. He has set our days before we are even born. And now it says that he sets the path of life before us. And I look at this and I think, Wow, that is, a, that is really contrary to how we live life and the way we see God sometimes. Because we live our life many times out of this begrudging submission to God. That we see God as this deity who absolutely says, we think, you know, hey, if I don't do the things that he says that he, is, he wants me to do, then God's going to light me up. And God is going to do something terrible and let something terrible come upon my life at some point. And we, so we live this life out of this begrudging submission to God. And when you go to Psalm 16 11, you realize that is not the path of life that God has set for you and I. It is not. Because it says in his presence there is fullness of joy is right and his pleasures forevermore. It's not pleasures that are just fleeting that lead to shame and, and, and guilt within our lives. These are pleasure, pleasures that never leave and there is joy forevermore. I understand that, yes, we are to understand the commands and the things that God wants us to do. But it's not about begrudgingly following him. But it's really that he has set the path to joy within our lives. That is the path that God has set. Yes. And so if we're going to talk about that, then we have to go to John chapter 10 and verse 10 to really understand who he is. It says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And as we dive into the book of James and and what we need to get our heart and our head around is, well, a couple of questions. And when you read James this week, Answer these for yourself. What is God after? Have you ever wondered that? What is God after? Well, God wants my money. Really? Really? This is the God who created all things and sustains all things? God is after your money? No, I think you need to go a little deeper than that. The second thing is, what is God trying to do? What is God? God's trying to ruin my life. He's just taking all the joy to my life because of all that. No, that is not true. We're going to talk about that in a moment. What is God going to accomplish in my life? What is it? No, I'm going to make this happen because I have the ability and the intellect to do these. No, what is God going to accomplish in your life? Because here's what I understand. God is leading you into this deepest, fullest life possible. God is not the enemy of life. God is the author of life in, in your, on your path today to, that, to that, that leading you to the fullest of pleasure and joy within your life. The sovereign king of glory is not a taker, but he is a giver. And when he does take at times, he takes to give within our lives, but he is a giver. So how does God lead us into full and meaningful life? That's a huge question. And so when you read this week, I'm going to answer that for you in a moment. But I really want you to come up with your own answer. Simply, how does God lead us into to full and meaningful life? Because what the psalmist said we just read is this. That you have led me and granted me fullness of life. And then Jesus says, I have come that he might have life more abundantly. So how does he lead us? Two things. Two things. One primary, one secondary, but yet both necessary. That's odd, isn't it? One primary, one secondary, but both are necessary. It'll make sense in a moment. The first is this. The way God leads us into the fullest possible life is, one, by revealing to us who he is. By revealing to us. Man, we went through this summer the Apostles' Creed, and we begin to have an understanding of who God is. James is going to lead us more into that understanding to gaze on the beauty, the magnitude uh, of the creator God of the universe It is how and what our hearts were created to do. Understand that. 
And every promise outside of that turns to ashes within our life. Because God and God alone is the one that satisfies the true longings of our heart. It is God and God alone who satisfies those things in our life. But the world swings around us and says, no, here's what you need to satisfy your life. And so the world says, hey, here's what you need. You need a husband or you need a wife. And you say, Mark, I don't know about the husband or the wife. I'm just praying for a girlfriend or a boyfriend or something like that, you know, or a relationship or someone in my life. And the world says, no, you need money. You need a great job. You need a good education. But, but here is the thing. Those things are not bad within themselves. But at some point in your life, all of those things will betray you. They will. They will betray you. I'm not saying that your, your husband or your wife may just you know, decide today to leave you. I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this, that, that at some point in death, those things will betray you. At some point, you know, we have no control over our money because we don't control the value of the dollar. So those things will, will betray us. It, it does. It happens. They're good things. We talked about this a few weeks ago, about that of those general hopes of our life and those ultimate hopes and how we fluctuate in and out of this whole process of taking those general hopes of our life, which are the things that we just talked about, and sliding them into those spots of ultimate hope in our life. And we call those misplaced hope misplaced hope in our life is absolutely catastrophic because they don't hold up under the pressure of that kind of hope. And what we do is we find ourselves chasing the wind and those kind of things. So, no, you know, what we need is what we are created for. And that is to behold the glory of God, to, to see his magnitude, his power and his might. That's what we're designed for. And not in some ethereal way, but it's why the Bible was written about God and not about us. It is. The Bible was written about God and not about us to reveal that glory to you and I because our hearts were designed for that. That is how we were created. You know, growing up in church and, and when, you, when you get your Bible, I've heard people say, and there's nothing wrong with calling the Bible this. People say, this is a, this is a roadmap for your life. Yeah, and in the back, you know, if you have this kind of Bible, there, there are some roadmaps. Absolutely, yes. But what I understand about Scripture is this. The Scripture wasn't written about me. The Scripture was written about God. Because if it was written about me, now it refers to me, absolutely, I understand that. But if it was written solely about me, then I would look at it as I'm trying to help myself and fix myself. And I have the answers for all of me. And what I realize is that I can't do that. Absolutely No, because it's like a train wreck trying to fix a train wreck. It doesn't work. And so we were designed to see the magnitude, the glory, and the power of God. That is how God created our soul. That is how he created our soul. It is. I mean, you know, it, it is, the Bible is an amazing thing that points us to God. But it's not this thing written about you. And it's not like God is holding our head in his lap and he's stroking our hair. And God is saying, man, you're so amazing. And all I can talk about is you all the time. That's not what this is about. No, the Bible is about God. And what we need most in our life is we need to see him. Because he is the only hope that we have in this life. Everything else will betray us. Everything will betray us. And so when we begin to focus on that in the book of James, what it does, James has a way, when we begin to look at Jesus, James has a way of leading us to the deep end of the pool. Out of the three-inch experience. To the deep end of the pool where we begin to look at ourselves. We begin to see ourselves for who we are in God. So what's primary in, our, primary in our life is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens up our hearts to believe on the person and the work of Christ. We are reconciled to the Father. It allows us to see the magnitude of God's grace and mercy for our lives. And that's primary. But the second is secondary, but it's necessary. And it's this, the way God leads us into the fullness, fullest possible life is that He makes known to us the path of life. He makes known to us the path of life. He lays before us in Scripture the, the, the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. He does. They're there. You can't take them out. 
They're there. They're not suggestions that you might follow at some point. No, but they are directives for our lives. Yeah, you know, and every time what God gives us a command, do you know what God is doing? He's wooing us and calling us to that life that he designed us to live, that life of joy and that life of pleasure. Not the fleeting pleasures, but the pleasures that last for all eternity. He's wooing us and leading us into that life. That is the path of life for you and I. Understand that this morning. And when there are those thou shalt nots, it's not that God is trying to rob you in any way. That's not it. God, listen, if God would never be glorified through you and I with begrudging, with that of simply that begrudging submission in, his, in our lives, that would never glorify God whatsoever. That would be like you coming to me and say, Mark, so how is your marriage? How is, how is your marriage with Reba? And I would say to you, well, you know, 39 years ago, I made some promises to that girl, and I've just had to keep them now for 39 years. That's really going to excite you about marriage, isn't it? Yes, that's the kind of relationship that I really want. That, you know, how's your marriage, Mark? Well, you know what? I've been trying to keep these promises for now 39 years, and sometimes they're tough, sometimes they're easy, but I'm just kind of having to stick to it because I made this commitment and uh, you look at me and you think man if marriage makes me that miserable i don't want to ever have a i don't want to ever be in a marriage in my life and some of you are sitting there saying mark you've just described my marriage you know and this is the way many of us live our life with god it's this begrudging submission every day that we say, I made a commitment to God. I made a commitment to God, so I'm going to have to keep this. I'm going to have to keep this commitment to God. And we find ourselves dragging ourselves through life. And that's not the path of life that God has set for us because that does not glorify Him. No. How is God glorified? It would be like you again coming and say, Mark, how's your marriage? And I'd say, hey, let me tell you about Reba. She is amazing. She is the world to me. Let me tell you the things that she brings into my life, how she blesses me, how she is my partner in all aspects of our life. It is absolutely amazing, and I love every day with it. Is there challenges? Yes, absolutely. But the journey, the journey far outweighs all of those challenges I find that I face in marriage. It does. And when I realize that, what I, it brings joy into my life. Understand this. This is the path that God has set for our lives. This is the path that he set. He sets the path for us. We behold his glory, the magnitude of his grace and mercy in our lives, and then he sets that path to that life of joy. And I'm not, no, don't get joy and happiness confused here, because I'm not saying that you're always going to be happy in this relationship, because there are going to be some tough times, and happiness is a fleeting emotion. It is, yes. It absolutely is. Some of you were happy driving up in the parking lot until you came into the lobby and you realized that it's fall and we changed the flavor of donuts on you this morning and all of a sudden you were no longer happy, right? Yes. It's a fleeting emotion. This is about joy. And joy is a gift from God where that comes from the Spirit of God inside of us. Joy is not given to us by external circumstances, but it's, a, it's joy within our lives. It is. And so what we find in the great, and it's a great thing about James, and we'll study this together, is that James simply does both of those things simultaneously. It reveals to us who God is, and it makes known to us the path of life. So, the last, thing, the last thing is this. Who is James then? Because this is important to kind of frame all this together. Who is James? Here's the first thing. There's a couple of things for you. You can fill this in later on as you read through this week in study. James wrote the book of James. You say, Mark, if that's the most profound thing you ever said, then I want my offering back, you know, because we, should, we need to get more than that. But some of you, you know, some of you are kind of like wondering, well, who wrote the book of James? I don't know. Maybe Paul wrote the book. Of, if you came in here this morning and you said to me, well, I think Paul wrote the book of James, then I think it's time for me to quit because I haven't done my job well here. No, James wrote the book of James. Who is James? He is the half-brother of Jesus. I love this. What was that like being the half-brother of Jesus? I don't know. But it had to be really cool when you were on the playground and you had that argument with everybody else on the playground that my dad can whip your dad. Jesus steps up and says to them, my dad can really whip all of your dads, okay? 
because he created every one of them. And then things kind of went crazy from there. I can't imagine, though, being his brother because he would always know your thoughts before you had them. So how do you have an argument with your brother when he knows your thoughts before you have them? He was the half-brother of Jesus. The third thing is this, that Jesus or that James did not believe that Jesus was the incarnate Christ during his three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. He did not believe that. No. How does that happen? Because they're brothers. And when your brother comes to you and says to you, I'm the son of God, you say, yeah, right, sure, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, we, we share a room, you know, and, and we know that that is not true. And, but yet we know that James did not believe that because there is an instance in the book, in the New Testament, where James and the others have siblings of Jesus come to him And really what they do, they try to simply come to him and seize him because they think that he has lost his mind. Because when your bro thinks that he is the son of God, God in the flesh, you really think he has probably lost his mind. But we know that later that he puts much faith in that of Christ James pushes all of his chips over to Jesus' side and says, yes, he is the Son of God. How does that happen? That happens when your half-brother is persecuted and he's placed in a mock trial. He's crucified on a Roman cross, which no one survives from that. He's placed in a borrowed tomb for three days, and on the third day he defies death, hell, and the grave by beating the grave And then he meets you on the seashore for a brunch of coffee and fish. That makes you a believer. How can you deny that? And we know that he believes that because he refers to himself in that James 1 and 1 He refers to himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way, that's the title that James refers to himself as. This guy who once said that Jesus has lost his mind. We need to kind of have an intervention here with him and we need to rescue him. But he puts so much faith in Jesus being the Son of God that he dies a martyr's death. That he refuses to renounce Christ. They take James, historians tell us, they take him to the top of the temple and they throw him off the temple into the road of the courtyard below. And he hits the ground, but he doesn't die. And it says that they took clubs, the mob did, and they beat him to death until he stopped breathing. But we know historians would tell us that during the time that the mob is beating him with clubs to death after he's been thrown from the temple, that they could hear him praying for those that are beating him, that they would understand who Christ is. That's the letter that you and I have the opportunity for the next 12 weeks to study together. It is. And the last thing that I have to say about James, James is the, and you say, Mark, this is kind of stuff that, you know, if you're on Bible Jeopardy, you might want to know this, but I don't really need to know that. But you need to know this because James is the oldest or one of the oldest New Testament manuscripts in our canon of Scripture. It was written in the 40s. Now, I'm not talking about 1940 or 1840, okay? Understand that, right? But it was written in 40 A.D., it was written right after what we believe, shortly after the, the ascension of Christ. It was written, as much as we can understand, right after Acts chapter 7, and that is the stoning of Stephen. It's written there. Why? Because it says at the very beginning, James says he's writing to those that are dispersed. 
And what's happening is that those, after Stephen is stoned, there's a great persecution that falls upon the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is huge. On the day of Pentecost, there are 3,000 men, not counting the children and women, that come to Christ. Later, we find there are an additional 5,000 that come to Christ. We believe historically that the church in Jerusalem at that time was about 18,000 to 20,000 people that met all over the city. And all of a sudden, there falls this great persecution on the children of God, and they're dispersing all over that known world. And everywhere they go, they preach the gospel. And everywhere they go, they plant churches. And so what James is doing, he's writing to those that are dispersed over the known part of the world. He is. Now, don't romanticize this group. Understand this is this wonderful and perfect group of people that are planting churches and preaching the gospel. Because when you begin to read the book of James, you realize that they're just as jacked up as you and I are. They really are. That they're just as much of a train wreck as you and I are. When you begin to read the, the topics and the things that you and I will discuss throughout the book of James. So they're much like us. Because why? Because it's a personal letter. It is the immensity of God. It is this huge, massive, all-knowing, all-powerful God who is focused upon us. Who is focused upon specifically me. It's a personal letter written to me and to you that God is going to speak through in our hearts. And here's what, when you read the book of James, you're going to discover a couple of things. The first is this, suffering never surprises God. Did you know that? It never surprises God. You got up this morning and your car wouldn't start. Do you think God was up there in heaven looking at you or he is here around us? And God said, well, I didn't see that one coming, you know. You never know. It's just your battery, I guess. I don't know. No, suffering never surprises God. He never promises. Look what it says. He never promises that we will not suffer, but rather he will be with us in our suffering and he will redeem our suffering. God does not drive an ambulance. What does that mean? Because an ambulance, when is an ambulance? An ambulance doesn't show up before you have the accident, does it? No. When does the ambulance show up? After you have the accident. The ambulance shows up after to try to put things back together. Can I tell you, suffering is never a surprise to God. God is always present. God is never late. He is never late. He is never surprised by the suffering of our life. Understand that. That is how God can take those things that are suffering in our life and he can use them to grow us into the person that he has called us to become. He's never late. The second thing I find in in the book of James is this, that God is about progress, not perfection. God is about progress, not perfection. Where there is faith, there is movement forward within our lives. You can read the book of James if you live to be 150. You could read it every day, or I guess every day of your life, and try to follow God faithfully. But you can read it on your 150th year of life, And it would simply say to you, man, I'm still not there. I'm still not there. Because it's not about perfection, but it's about progress within our lives. It is. And some of you think, man, just to get my life right, man, what I need is I need a longer vacation. That's not always bad, is it? I need a better car. I need a new relationship. Or maybe I need to find another church for myself. And James says, no, because this is not about perfection. This is about progress. So James says, hey, look within yourself. Look within yourself. And you're going to find where things are broken. And the third thing is, the constant pull of the world is that riches and comfort will satisfy. And that pull is always a lie. It always, it's always a lie. The pull of the world is the soft sell to you and I the things that the Bible teaches us about life. It's a soft sell of those things. God, nobody thinks like that anymore, God. So just throw us a bone. And God says, no, because here's the things I want you to understand. First, to look upon me and see the magnitude of my glory. Second is this, that I'm the one that wants to design and lay down the path of life for you. I've already designed it, he says. To set your path to joy and to fullness. 
And so what James does is this. It drops an anchor in our life. It drops an anchor. James is screaming to us, and you're going to see this as you read this, and I kind of wind all this up and we'll get ready for our video. James is screaming to us, as you read these five chapters this week, which I trust that you will do, it says, hey, here's what it says. No, it says, don't go that way, come this way is what it says. It says, follow me. This is the way to life. This is the way the meaning of life. This is the way to the depth of life and the purpose for your life. This way to the fullness of purpose. Because God says this, I have come that you might have life more abundantly is what it says. It says, I've made known to you the path of life. That I filled you with joy in my presence. And at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In this immensity of God. In this, this vastness of the God that you and I serve. God is dialed into you. Ah, I want you to, to get that this morning. You said, Mark, we know. You said it 30 times already. I know. But I want you to understand that in the immensity of the God that we serve, God is dialed into, don't use the word us, God is dialed into you this morning. He's dialed into you. Personally. At this moment of your life, whatever you are dealing with, Wherever you find yourself on the journey today, He is dialed in to you. Because I believe what He's going to do in our lives over the next 12 weeks is He's going to take us from the three-inch experience to the deep end of the pool. It's discipleship is what it is. Because he's dialed in to you. I want to share this testimony video, video with you this morning. So, a young lady that sits our church, her, her um, name is Krishna Patel. And uh, just, just watch this with us for a few moments. My name is Krishna. Um, I am a 23-year-old, doing nothing at the time, child of God. <laughs> uh, a little bit about myself. I was born in the United States, but my parents are both from India. Um, and so my life has been a little confusing being a first-gen um, kid. I was born and brought up in a really small town in South Carolina called Fort Lawn, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere. My parents decided to put me in a Christian school um, starting in kindergarten because they didn't really want to put me in um, the public school system. And so since the age of three, I grew up learning about God. We had Bible stories every morning. We had chapel every week. And that was just my everyday life. I learned about God every single day. My parents were and are Hindu. And so I wasn't really brought up with a Christian background. I learned about the religion, but it was kind of secondhand. They really didn't force me into uh, being a practicing Hindu. They just kind of taught me the traditions and things, hoping that I would be um, more acceptable to the cultures, just like I was to the rest of the lifestyle. Um, but it stayed just like a secondhand thing to me. I never really truly embraced Hinduism. But on the other hand, uh, at school, I learned about God and went, we went through the Bible and I learned a lot about him growing up. But it wasn't until I was in the sixth grade that I actually accepted him as my Lord and Savior. Um, and at that point, I realized that I could have a personal relationship with him. 
and that he cared about me. Um, and whereas in Hinduism, it's a lot of just making sure you're doing right and you've got a good karma that you have to build up and not necessarily that there's an end-all be-all because if you do something bad one day, you might end up in hell. There's no safety or security or love or a personal relationship. But as most young people who grow up in the church or have in Christian homes, I wasn't very much involved in church. Uh, a lot of that had to do because my parents weren't Christian, but I just kind of went through the motions, listened to sermons, read my Bible occasionally. I never truly got to that deep, deep understanding of God. And to me, he always stayed almost an impersonal person that I had just gotten saved. And as long as I did good and followed the rules, I'd be okay. It wasn't until I moved to Anderson and started going to college and started looking for a church that I felt that longing in my heart for a personal relationship with Christ. And a year after, a year and a half after I got to college, I started attending Hope. And I don't remember which Sunday it was, but one Sunday, Pastor Mark was talking about how God isn't just someone to be feared or to be reverent of, which we are, but that He is our Father. And that not only does He care about us and what we do and what we say, but he also cares for us as a father and like he wants to make sure that we're okay and that if anything that hurts us or wants to harm us, he's against. Um, and that hit me hard because all my life, my dad has always been someone, he's always been in my life, but he's never been personal or like, I can probably count on two hands how many times I felt truly loved by my dad. I always would try to make him proud in hope that I would I could do something to earn that love. But I can't there I can't earn somebody's love. And even though I knew that he loved me, I could never feel that love. But after Pastor Mark said that, I just broke down in one of the pews. And then we sang Good, Good Father at the end. And that song just spoke to me. And I could feel God's love just wrapping around me. And now anytime I'm struggling or I, like, I'm talking to somebody at church or at a Bible study, I can feel that love. And I know no matter if anybody loves me, if anybody talks to me or cares that I'm in their life, God knows me as a daughter. He loves me. And that there's nothing in the world that I can do or I cannot do that would make him not want me anymore. That I'm loved and wanted. And it doesn't matter if anybody else, anybody else in the world, and if I feel completely alone, that he will always be there with me and he's fighting for me always that's all I have to say in the immensity of God I believe at times that we forget that he is dialed into us. And if you take anything away from our talk this morning, it's maybe very different as an intro to a sermon series, that you walk away with that, that you know that, yes, he is an immense God but he is dialed into your life personally, you. He is the good, good father. He is the good, good father. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Father, we are reminded this morning of your, your immensity that you are the creator of all things. 
we are reminded of your sustaining power in our lives. We are again reminded of your creative ability. But today, in this moment, we are focused upon and drawn to the equal understanding that you are dialed into us as your child. That, Lord, today we, we take this and we break it down from a corporate level and even from a global level and we bring it down specifically to us. That God, today you are dialed into my life with all of its inconsistency. Lord, with all of the faults and the failures, that that does not in any way impede your interest in me. you are dialed into me and you're dialed into every person in this room in an unexplainable yet obtainable personal way today. So Lord, for those that feel alone and those that feel like that they're on the journey solo, remind them that you are dialed into them. For those that feel like their world is crashing around them, they remind them you are dialed into them today. For those that are functioning in a capacity of overload, remind them today that you are dialed into them personally. For those that are dealing with the unexplainable, the questionable, that you are dialed into them personally today, Lord. That you are our Father. Nothing goes unseen. Nothing goes unseen in our life. And so, Lord, in the light of that, we open our hearts to you. Father, as your brother James did, even through all the inconsistencies of his life, we open our heart to you. Lead us down the path of joy and pleasures forevermore. For you are dialed into us this morning. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Would you stand, please, this morning? And give you an opportunity to pray. While Brittany sings, I think, yes, and James Clay, and give you an opportunity to pray. Pray standing at your seat if you're comfortable. Come down front. No judgment here. No rooms to take you in and talk to you after service. Just you and God. Because he's the one that can change you this morning. Not me or anyone else. But he is dialed in to you today. So trust him.